there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 113, Genoese Vacation. After covering a relatively straightforward and productive disarmament conference last week, today marks a return to the big and acrimonious international get-togethers. About 110 episodes back, I covered the Paris Peace Conference and how it attempted, and failed, to settle the international status quo going into the future. And because it mostly succeeded only in confirming the supremacy of the Big Three in the Entente, some follow-up was required to smooth out the rough edges. And today, I'm turning to a follow-up conference designed for the great powers to assemble like superheroes and hash-out deals where they could all tolerate each other moving forward. A settlement that would supposedly include both Germany and the burgeoning Soviet Union. The setting would be the Italian port town of Genoa, and the conference there would set the tone for the next several years of diplomacy, and I don't mean that in a good way. It would be the most ambitious attempt post-Paris to create viable relationships between both the winners and losers of the World War I years, and would be followed by other conferences and treaties after it. As you might imagine, none were terribly successful in the long term, although especially in the back half of the 20s they came tantalizingly close to making something lasting. For the next few weeks, I'll be covering diplomatic campaigns aimed at not just creating understandings and balances of power, but to actually build relationships to make it so that peace was in everyone's interests. In earlier episodes, I've touched on the Locarno Conference especially as an example of practical statesmanship that produced an effective arrangement to enforce peace, albeit one that only covered Western Europe, which I'll be covering next week. Another topic will be the equally famous but also heavily derided Kellogg-Briand Pact, which created a legal basis to outlaw war, which was naive, but everybody knew that up front. It just showed where people were thinking diplomacy was headed. Unfortunately, all this was too little too late by the time the Great Depression hit and blew everything up. Bonds between nations hadn't been built up to establish the trust necessary for collective action, and Europe shriveled into an economic free-for-all that wrecked the continent's politics and rendered the work of the past decade moot. And that's why I'll be covering these stabs at peacemaking, as even the success stories carried flaws that ultimately doomed them. And the outright failures? Well, they were failures with nary a silver lining to them. And speaking of failures, there was the Genoa Conference of 1922. This conference is notable because it represented the last major attempt at creating a lasting general settlement on the part of the Versailles peacemakers. Afterwards, the attempts became far narrower in their scope, much like how the Washington Naval Conference focused on navies and a balance of power in the Pacific only. It was the brainchild of the last of the Paris Big Four still remaining in power, David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of the UK. But despite his old counterparts having passed on to the political afterlife, the politics of the day were still very much those of 1919. His own government consisted of a coalition of liberals and conservatives intent on returning to a 1914 status quo of overseas hegemony, the French were chomping at the bit to shake down Germany, while Italy was roiled in its two red years of left-wing agitation and fascist backlash, as its liberal government creaked along shakily. But Lloyd George, in between flights of fanciful thinking, at least recognized the challenges that faced Europe. The French may have had the biggest army in Europe, but they lacked the self-confidence to take bold action against Germany by themselves. They desperately wanted a formal alliance with the UK before they did so, and not wanting to take sides, the UK avoided doing exactly that. 
The UK itself had become a victim of its imperial overreach, as trouble abounded in Ireland, India, Turkey, Egypt, and Iraq. The United States had almost literally elected to stand aside by itself. Lloyd George knew that the UK and France alone couldn't hold things together, and they needed to have a collective understanding between the major players of the European continent if the Versailles system were to hold together, which meant he was going to have to bring Germany and Russia back into the fold. Both nations were still pariah states, denied representation in the League of Nations, and locked out of normal diplomatic and economic relations. Germany owed a lot of money to France and Belgium in the form of war reparations, money it didn't have. And as you might remember, it had a populace delusional enough to entertain notions that they weren't totally at the mercy of foreign powers. As for the Russians, you know well enough that the communists weren't popular on the foreign relations scene. But Lloyd George knew that making decisions without them was pointless. Both nations were large enough that no sweeping agreement was secure unless they had bought into it. And part of the thinking was that in 1922, the Entente still had just enough juice left to hammer out European relations on terms favorable to them. And other prospective participants had their own reasons for joining in what on the surface would appear to be a UK-French show. The Italian government might have been creaking along, but by the start of 1922, national chaos seemed endemic as the fascist squads appeared intent on instigating a civil war. They needed a win to maybe score some legitimacy domestically, and hosting a successful international conference might be a plus. The Germans were plainly game for any opportunity to try and talk down the reparations bill, the size of which led many in Germany to oppose paying it on indignant principle, which destabilized politics and the nation's economy, which left France hovering ominously across the Rhine, set to invade if they weren't satisfied. Leading up to the conference, they had convinced themselves that the Entente would listen to reason, or at least their version of the reason. On August 27, 1921, they had concluded the Weisbaden Agreement with France, which stipulated they could pay for reparations in the form of goods instead of cash, the latter of which the German government didn't have. This was a partial victory for both sides, as while Germany still had to deliver, it had far more coal than it did gold. And for France, while that nation was looking for cold, hard cash, they knew the dire straits Germany was in, and this way they'd at least get something. That a previously intractable France sort of compromised was a good sign. Plus, the British were hungry to open German markets, which required normal relations, so there was maybe a friend there for the Germans. The Russians were the most out-there guests. The Bolsheviks had promised global revolution to sweep out all the governments attending Genoa, and the Western interventions during the Civil War had left a mark. But early 1922 was a fortuitous time for the West in regards to relations with Bolshevik Russia. 1921 had seen peasant revolts and a mass famine that had brought Lenin's government to its knees. And while the NEP promised economic liberalization, Foreign investment and technical expertise was craved above all to begin rebuilding Russian industry. The capitalists would have to be engaged with. The Genoa Conference was preluded by an Entente get-together in the city of Caen, a town on the southern French coastline close to the Italian border, now world-famous for its film festival. Meeting for a week during January 1922, it offered the kind of balmy Mediterranean weather I'm sure all the leaders wanted to return to sooner rather than later. The official participants were all victorious nations in World War I, but there was a sense that a broader meeting was required. Lloyd George and the French Prime Minister at the time, Aristide Briand, had been wrangling diplomatically for months already. 
Brion, as you may recall, was that political chameleon who slid all across the spectrum without ever really believing in much of anything, yet was still a charmer and a master diplomat. He was also a practical man and willing to compromise on the whole reparations thing, much to the fury of other French politicians. The con meeting did not wind up going to his advantage. France was in an economic straitjacket and lacked the punch to break out of it, leaving Brion, who was desperate for a dependable settlement in Europe so that his homeland could sort itself out, into caving to Lloyd George's demand of putting what was to be paid back on the table as an issue to be debated. Even that small concession wound up collapsing Brion's government, and before the con meeting was adjourned, he was out of office. For the moment, though, Lloyd George got his way and that France would come to the table. So a call went out all over Europe and also to the U.S. to assemble and discuss how they would all live together moving forward. Germany could look forward to renegotiate its obligations to the victors, but also had to understand that there would still be significant obligations. The Soviets would be offered recognition if they backed off the propaganda campaigns against the other governments of the world. He even threw the Italians a bone and gave them the privilege of playing host to the festivities, set to begin on April 10, 1922. The choice of venue was also a little slap by Lloyd George towards the League of Nations, which had hoped to host the conference in its own headquarters of Geneva. However, by 1922, Lloyd George had largely lost interest in the League and personally derided it. He felt that the obligations I covered two episodes ago of taking preset economic action against aggressors far too restricting for his tastes. Already at this early stage, one of the cornerstone members of the League was already snubbing it, which left it outside of the proceedings entirely. Instead of building its capabilities to mediate global diplomacy, it was undermined as being incapable of doing that. The French, for their part, entered the conference unhappy at being bullied on the reparations issue. The Germans and Soviets were painfully aware they were participating as supplicants, begging for favor. And the U.S., for their part, decided to sit out, deciding that the Washington Naval Conference was enough for them. Which, given that American foreign policy was focused on the Pacific, made enough sense. Also, Secretary of State Hughes suspected Lloyd George wanted to upstage the American-dominated Washington Conference, which had just concluded a couple months prior. The hurt feelings at the start of the meeting were palpable to all except Lloyd George, whose own personal arrogance blinded him to what such a meeting could accomplish which would play no small part to the meeting's failure and his own fall from power soon after. Genoa was on paper a good choice to host. The city itself is beautiful with a long and prestigious history as a city-state. It's situated on the coast, and the climate is wonderful. But by the April 10th start date, the city was seeing some hard times. The economic recession was in full swing, the socialists and fascists were fighting in the streets, and there was even a water shortage. The British and French started arguing from word go, as the new Poincaré government had resolved to not be pressured in the same way Briand's had been. Lloyd George had been adamant towards Briand in forcing France to moderate its position on reparations, but while his strong stance had worked in the short term, it also meant Briand wasn't calling the foreign policy shots anymore. With Poincaré in charge, France was less inclined than ever to compromise, and they weren't afraid to obstruct Lloyd George's pet project and the big two topics on the table, reparations and disarmament, were most sensitive to France. The mood in the opening days of the conference were tense as hell. Most everybody in Europe with a stake in the Versailles peace was there, the Entente members were already fighting, the new Central European states were ambivalent about just what their role in the conference would be, and the Russians had made a little pit stop in Berlin on the way that made everybody else nervous. 
The Russians had pitched to the Germans working together to ensure they weren't bullied individually. That cooperation would entail German recognition of Soviet Russia and the normalization of economic relations. Uh, the proposition was intriguing to the Germans as they did need friends, but they also didn't want to be the first to open up to the communists and turn the offer down. Not that that changed Entente apprehensions. The fact that the meeting took place was enough to be unnerving. And at first it appeared as if the Germans didn't need to make those kinds of commitments to the Russians. At the opening of negotiations, the French delegation found itself isolated off to the side. The British had rejected their efforts at making a formal alliance, and their bickering had driven Lloyd George to go easier on the Germans. The delegations from the smaller Central European states like Poland and the Little Entente declined to aid France diplomatically, not wanting to get saddled with their vendetta against the Germans. The main factor working in France's favor was the expansive nature of the conference. In typical Lloyd George fashion, it was supposed to accomplish everything. Reparations from Germany would be settled, relations with Russia and Germany would be normalized, disarmament would be hammered out, and all the little diplomatic disputes between the participating nations that might stand in the way of those aforementioned goals would be addressed. Heck, even the Hungarians managed to slide in another piece of business when they raised the issue of the optants who were moving out of the territory they had lost and into the reduced Hungarian state. Naturally, Lloyd George was biting off way more than he could chew here, as he had few reliable partners to achieve most any of those goals. Spurring the French, he relied on charming the Germans and Russians, who themselves had little to lose in the event of the whole affair falling apart. The French themselves were disinclined to see the conference succeed on the UK's terms, and despite their isolation, played for time as work began on the itinerary. The first and foremost problem for the Entente actually turned out to be the Russians, not the Germans. Their delegation was led by Maxim Litvinov and Grigory Chichirin, two of the most important Soviet diplomats in the early days. The Russians tempted the Entente with offers of boundless investment opportunities in their war-torn homeland, which, as you will recall from the previous miniseries, was a deindustrialized and starving ruin at the time. If you're starting from square one, even a little investment could get you a lot, which is where the Russians were. The Entente, though, weren't going for it, as they were disinclined to invest until the Russians made good on the old czarist debts. Many of the loans that had been made to the old empire had been done via raising bonds purchased by patriotic private citizens looking to help an ally against the Germans. Oftentimes, these were very influential private citizens who used their influence in government towards redeeming the debts they wanted paid back instead of their home country smoothing out relations with a government that they despised. In the case of France, there were 1.2 million such people representing an active voting bloc that couldn't be ignored. The Russian diplomats said point-blank they weren't authorized to honor the Tsarist debts, and moreover, they had monetary demands of their own. The Entente interventions all across Russia had not been forgotten. Indeed, the Japanese, who were also in attendance at the conference and occupied themselves with dodging the Russians specifically, were still occupying an ever-shrinking slice of the Far East. On top of that, there was the matter of the Entente giving piles of equipment and money to the whites. The Bolsheviks considered all of that unjust war damages and made counter-demands for reparations from the Entente. Tellingly, the Entente were unwilling to pay anything themselves, and at best would take that into consideration when accepting a smaller amount on the Tsarist debts. Lloyd George was especially annoyed as the Irish had just presented him with a similar demand for damages done to their country. 
Chichirin and Lloyd George then descended into a long argument over whose fault World War I was, who had suffered more, and whose conduct during the war was in the wrong. When Lloyd George accused the Russians of bailing on their allies, Chichirin likened the Russian withdrawal to the British evacuation of Gallipoli, which I'm sure went over great. While Chichirin tried to steer the focus back to just the Tsarist debts, Lloyd George didn't come around, and the other powers were unconvinced. The French and Japanese both refused to budge on canceling the debts, and talks were suspended until Lenin could opine on the situation from Moscow. But the Russians turned to a little manipulation to try and break out of their cage. They had been meeting the British, French, and Italians separately, and the details of their meetings were not public to everyone else. The Japanese did not sit in on the talks, again due to the awkwardness of them occupying Russian soil at the time, but communicated their opinions through the British. Once it became clear that talks weren't going anywhere soon, the Russians let slip to the Germans that they had been talking to the Entente. They refused to give the Germans any details, but did tell them that, that the Entente was looking at making a speedy agreement with the Russians. The Italian representatives separately confirmed that talks were going well, which was weird because they weren't, and the Italians didn't have a lot to gain by panicking the Germans. Whether it was a misunderstanding, a deliberate tactic, or some mixture of the two, the German delegation took the statements at face value and suddenly got very anxious as a group. They had been spending the opening days of the conference trying to build friendly support among the smaller nations, in addition to the UK and Italy, so that when the showdowns on reparations would get started, they'd have some friends. Now it looked like they had wasted the first week while the Entente squared away their other big problem. If the Russians came to an early understanding with the West, then Germany wouldn't have as much leverage. The head of their delegation, the foreign minister Walter Rathenau, resolved to reopen talks with the Russians about a separate treaty. He personally was also annoyed at having been left out of the Russian talks, as when he arrived, he was under the impression his country would be treated as a first-class power again, a sentiment he had led his bosses back in Berlin to believe as well. The quick weekend negotiations between the Russians and Germans culminated on April 16th in the Treaty of Rapallo, signed just six days into the conference. The treaty established Germany's recognition of Soviet Russia as a sovereign state and that economic ties would be normalized, which meant that Germany was about to pick up a steady customer for its industrial goods. This does not sound groundbreaking when I say it out loud, but remember that Soviet Russia was a nation under virtual siege, with the non-communist states of the world working to keep it apart until the great powers could figure out how to bring it into the global community on terms beneficial to themselves. Germany was now breaking the siege and offering an economic portal, which, to be fair, they were themselves ruined by the war and under intense outside pressure. But their example could now be followed without subsequent nations being accused of being the first, looking especially hard at the Italians, whose liberal government were desperate for any agreements that could improve its standing at home. Reactions to the treaty varied. Most everyone knew that talks between the two were taking place, and the British initially met the news with a shrug. The French had a similar reaction, but did promise to make good on Germany openly being defiant of the Entente's wishes. It also gave the Russians some wiggle room on the Tsarist debt issue. The Russians now had a stable conduit to Western markets, and had every reason to believe more would later follow. The pressure exerted by the Entente in their first week against them was for naught. Lloyd George set forth on a delicate balancing act, he publicly condemned the Germans and stripped them of much of their standing in the conference, 
basically reducing them to observers able to negotiate on terms pertaining to their country alone. But they were not cast out entirely. Indeed, he began to try and split the German delegation by threatening that the reparations discussions would go poorly for them on account of Rapallo. He hounded them that he had the French on board to compromise, that they had just ruined the entire conference. The German delegation was not of one voice, and many openly questioned the wisdom of budding up with the communists, all of them being familiar with their own history with the far left. Rathenau lashed out at Lloyd George, pointing out that the prime minister had effectively ignored them up to that point in the conference, and their lack of progress towards an agreement forced them to link up with the Russians. This bickering went on for another interminable week, all the while Lloyd George tried to reboot talks with the Russians. On that score, he was working at a new disadvantage, but instructions that came in from Moscow offered a slim hope. Lenin and Trotsky had talked the matter over and agreed to recognize the Tsarist debts and offer restitution if the Entente agreed to extend new loans to be used for reconstruction. This was something Lloyd George could work with, and he and the Italians were quick to restart talks. The French were less enthusiastic, just wanting to get their money back and be done with the Bolsheviks. But Lloyd George convinced them to rejoin the talks on the grounds that nothing had been agreed to just yet. He might have also told them that he personally didn't want to agree to the Russian proposal, but didn't want to waste an opportunity to make a more advantageous one. Litvinov, though, immediately turned aggressive in their next meeting on April 21st. The Russians demanded recognition and relief loans, and in exchange would be willing to pay out pre-1914 debts after a 30-year grace period ended. The wartime loans would not be paid back at all. Private property would be compensated for on a case-by-case basis by the Soviet government. The French were unimpressed and refused to back off their earlier position. Lloyd George was left throwing fits. His hope had been that everybody would see reason, or his version of it rather, and compromise. His backup hope had been that if one side refused to compromise, that he could team up with the ones who did. But nobody was giving an inch, and it was starting to get to him. There simply was not one single power capable of putting sufficient pressure to bring everyone to the table and shake hands. And the British in general, not just Lloyd George, were averse to picking a side and forcing through a victory. In hindsight, a united front with France would have been the most prudent move long term, but the British were convinced they could have it both ways and get everybody to act in the UK's interests. This did not occur, and after three weeks, enthusiasm for Genoa was starting to dim. After a while, the leaders of the smaller powers began shuffling back home. It was just as well, as especially for the Central European states, they almost exclusively looked out for their own interests and were far less interested in the details of the global issues the conference leaders were wrangling over. The observers sent by the United States reported back that it had been the right idea to not formally take part in the failing endeavor. Lloyd George went back to the Russians and by May 2nd, slammed his head into that issue once again. By the end of the day, he had convinced not just the other Entente members, but many of the other states of Europe to offer concrete economic relief packages aimed at restoring Russian agriculture and then its industry. In exchange, the Russians would recognize the Tsarist debt and come back to the table to arrange to pay it down. Lloyd George had spent over a week wrangling nations like Sweden, the Netherlands, and Czechoslovakia to join in the scheme, and it represented the most expansive offer of aid the Russians had yet gotten. But by now, the Russians had abandoned their ambitions of further deals at Genoa 
and decided to make mischief once again. This time, they spread a rumor that the Royal Dutch Shell Company, a British-controlled business despite the name, was going to be brought in for a joint venture running the Baku and Grozny oil fields. The negotiations on foreign investment to Russia broke down under international outrage as other major companies outside the UK had wanted a piece of that action. Suddenly, it looked to all the world that Britain was angling to lock up the choice bits of the Russian economy for themselves once the doors were opened. The Western camp broke down over mutual suspicions, while Litvinov and Chicherin high-fived each other. The Russians proceeded to grandstand against the capitalists, and the Entente just kept on bickering. By May 6th, Lloyd George was described as a beaten man, and he was desperate to show something for the five-week conference that had only produced a treaty of German-Russian friendship. Relations with the French had gotten so bad that a rumor spread that the British were going to terminate the Entente, forcing Lloyd George to call a panic press conference to deny that as everybody entered panic mode. It was an amazing display of disunity, and the Bolsheviks were smug despite their own limited success. That being said, it must have been satisfying to see the West tear themselves apart as they were doing. Lloyd George would busy himself trying to force through any kind of agreement, but was stymied at every turn. He thought he was again making progress getting nations to the table, but then on May 14th, the French laid out that their stance was for the conference to be wound down and reconvened at a later date which itself would be set at an unspecified time in the future. They were effectively calling for the conference to be shuttered, and Lloyd George knew it. If that feels anticlimactic, imagine how he must have felt at the time. Genoa was the last great conclave of Europe before World War II, and almost less than nothing had been accomplished by it. Nothing had been resolved, and in fact, everybody probably hated each other a lot more after the fact. A month and a half had been wasted, and the Entente position was left weaker than it ever had been before. Italy's government was still teetering and, in fact, had changed hands during the conference, and the French were openly threatening to invade the Ruhr Valley if Germany didn't make punctual reparations payments. The final session was held on May 19th. It was the first time in weeks that Rathenau was able to make an address, while Chicherin taunted the French about their lost money. It was not terribly dignified, but again, the conference had never been that. It had far too cumbersome an agenda, with too many players, and when compromise proved impossible, Lloyd George refused to pick a side and turn the scales towards some conclusion, any conclusion. And that was the tragedy of peacemaking in the early 20s. There was no trust between powers, for which there was good reason, they were a self-centered bunch, and the strongest combination of France and the UK could never come together. The French were too afraid to back down from their oddly fragile position of strength, Meanwhile, the UK still desired friendship with both them and the Germans. Their attempts at creating a new balance of power, though, were futile and left ongoing problems unsolved. The unstable status quo would explode during the Ruhr crisis, and only that disaster seemed to shake Europe out of its lethargy. And speaking of which, I'll be picking up next week with the Locarno treaties that came out of that particular train wreck. So join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. 